morning, LifeBridge, and anybody else who is watching. We welcome everybody uh, from a spectrum of believers to seekers. We're glad you're here. And uh, this is a, a difficult times in our church, difficult times in our city, our country, and even in the world. And here we are with uh, stay-at-home orders. And so we are wanting to honor that and be able to still proclaim uh, God's Word to you. So hopefully you're there and others are gathered with you, and we are excited to be here. This is our Discovery Hour at LifeBridge. It goes from 9.30 to 10.30. Uh, usually we gather here for all ages and stages of people, and we bridge the gap between learning and, uh, learning and, li- and living. And so, uh, but with COVID-19 and what is going on uh, temporarily, I'll be teaching here during the Discovery Hour before the 1045 service with Pastor Bruce. And so I hope you'll be here and join us. And so let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask Him to work in our hearts as we dive into God's Word. Father, we come and we acknowledge that You are sovereign over all that's going on in our lives. These are trying times. They're difficult times. Lord, we know there are people in our church who are laid off. There's others who are uh, just the isolation and the separation can be a temptation to us, and it can be a prone, uh, prone us to depression. And so, Lord, we ask for your guidance, your protection over us, over our city, Lord, over our community. We pray for your protection over our country. And even during this time, we typically pray for our missionaries and global partners. We pray, Lord, their protection. Pray that you would comfort them. Some of them may be watching. Some of them are uh, not able to go to their country. Some of them are uh, quarantined in their countries. Lord, we pray that the gospel would advance, not only through LifeBridge, but through our ministries and through our missions around the world. And now, Lord, we pray that you would soften our hearts, give us ears to hear. Let us not just be hearers of the word, but doers also. Lord, give us eyes to see your son, Jesus Christ, in this passage. And Father, may we draw closer to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, we're glad you're here. I want to remind you that previous teaching and notes for this series are available on our website at wearelifebridge.com. Also, notes for this lesson can be downloaded. They'll be always uploaded by Saturday. You can have them. At the end of these lessons are some tips and suggestions for family worship so that you can uh, worship there with your family. Uh, Audio is at iTunes New Life Class Podcast, and the video will be uploaded to our website as well as here on our Facebook page. So, we're in a series, The Gospel According to Isaiah, and we're looking at one of the greatest chapters of the Old Testament and perhaps one of the greatest chapters in all the Bible. It's Isaiah 53. And last week we said, again, it begins in Isaiah 52, verse 13. It's one of the worst chapter divisions in all the Bible. And so if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, uh, turn with me to Isaiah, Isaiah 53. 
in your Bibles. And last week, we looked at the, the servant's sovereign success. And we looked at the first part of this great chapter that begins in chapter 52. This week, we want to be looking at the servant's shameful suffering. And so, if you have your Bibles, uh, let's look at, and let's begin reading. I'll begin reading in Isaiah 52 and begin in verse 13. Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. Just as many were astonished at you, so his appearance was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. Thus, by that marring, by that humiliation, thus he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths on account of him. For what had not been told them, they will see. And what they had not heard, they will understand. Now, into the first three verses of chapter 53. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hide their face. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. So as we look at these verse, these three verses in Isaiah 53, there's one big question that these verses answer, and it's this. How do people respond? How do people respond to the servant's shameful suffering? That's what we see in Isaiah 53, verses 1 through 3. And the answer we're going to see can be summed up in three words. Unbelief, unimpressed, and they consider him to be unworthy. In their unbelief, they respond with unbelief to his suffering. And because of their unbelief, they're unimpressed with what they see. And because they are unimpressed, they consider him to be unworthy of their respect, much less their worship. So as we dive into this, I want you to ask two questions of yourself to kind of begin to internalize this message. And those two questions are this. How do I respond to the suffering of God's servant. How do I respond to the suffering of Jesus? How have I done that in the past? How am I responding to that even now in my life? And then if you're a Christ follower, I want you to ask this question. How do I respond as a Christ follower when serving Jesus and others results in shame and suffering coming upon me? Here is our Lord serving His Father. And he endures shame and suffering. And if we are his followers, we will share in his shame and his suffering. How do we respond to that? You know, right now we're in this stay-at-home orders and this lockdown and this shutdown and this virus. And we don't know what the future holds. But right now we're feeling isolation. We're feeling separation. And in that isolation and separation... 
There it can even be feelings of shame and why am I suffering this? Why is my job being laid off? Why is this happening at this difficult time in my life? Why is this happening in my senior year? Why are we having to go through this at my company or in our country? And there's a sense, there's a real sense among us of isolation and separation and maybe even shame. And so how do you respond to that? This passage is going to help us see that. And the first response that we see, and it's in verse 1, the first response is unbelief. How do people respond? to the suffering of the servant and the shame he endures. They respond with unbelief, and here's what they ask. How could our salvation come through his humiliation? Or if you wanted to put it into the words of Isaiah in verse 1, you would ask it this way. How could the arm of the Lord work salvation through such humiliation. How can this be the arm of the Lord at work? And this first verse, there's two ways to translate it. And if you've downloaded the notes, you can see those. Uh, One way is to translate the first one, a message we share, but others reject. And the NES, the NIV, the ESV, who says it this way, who has believed our message? We're sharing this message. But who's believing us? The other way to interpret it is a message we hear and we initially reject it. And you can see this translation in the Christian Standard Bible when they say, Who has believed what we have heard? And what are they talking about? They're talking about what we just studied last week. We're, they're talking about what we just read about in verses 13 through 15. This humiliation that results in this great exaltation. Who would believe that a Savior would become sovereign over the world and yet go so low in His humiliation? Now, I lean more to that second understanding of the verse Who has believed what we have heard? But either way, both translations are accurate and are true. Because think about it in your own life. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, how did you first respond to the gospel? The first time you heard it. I would imagine, like most of us, you responded with unbelief. But then you heard the message again. And maybe you even heard it many times. But there came a point in time when God in His grace revealed who Jesus was to you. It was the same message you had heard many times. But now God in His grace opened your heart. I think of Acts 16 where it says of the first convert in Europe, the Lord opened Lydia's heart to respond to what she was listening to. And then when you responded, you turned from your sins and you placed your faith in the Christ, Jesus Christ, his suffering, his death, his burial, his resurrection. And all of a sudden you said, why did it take so long for me to see this? Why did it take so long for me to reject? Why did I reject this so much? And you're like, man, now everybody needs to hear it. And so you go out and you share with a bunch of people. And then what happens? They reject it. And you're like, man, this is such good news. I should have believed it long ago. And why in the world do so many people reject it? 
Well, the reason is found in verse 1. And there's two truths I want you to see out of this verse 1. And here's the, the first truth. It's this. Our inability, our inability to believe God is working to save sinners through this shameful suffering of His servant. Or you could just say it simply, our inability to believe the gospel for our salvation. You see, the key phrase in verse 1 is the arm of the Lord. The arm of the Lord. And when you trace that phrase through the book of Isaiah, there's a half a dozen times where it's used in the book of Isaiah. And we don't have time. I have those references in your notes. But when you trace out that word, you realize the arm of the Lord is the presence of God to deliver His people in a powerful way. It's God's presence among His people to powerfully save them. And as you go through the book of Isaiah, you see that God promises to bear His arm of strength to both save those who trust in Him and to judge those who reject Him. In fact, in Isaiah 52.10, just a few verses before this passage, in Isaiah 52.10, it says this, One day the Lord will come to Zion and bear His arm to save His people. And here's what it says, The Lord has bared His holy arm in sight of the nations that all the ends of the earth may see the salvation of God. In other words, he's like flexing his muscle and he's present on this earth to bring in his kingdom and to judge his enemies and to deliver his people. And yet, boom, in Isaiah 53, 1, all of a sudden the arm of the Lord isn't this mighty, strong deliverer. It's this weak, humiliated sufferer. And though who do not have eyes to see say where is the arm of the Lord in him where is the strength of God in all that suffering you see they see the suffering servant but they can't believe that he could be God's saving arm of salvation they hear the good news of salvation but they can't believe one who suffers so greatly and has shame so deeply could ever be their savior. And I just want to pause here and and really be honest with you. All of us have this same inability due to our depravity. You see, all of us are born rebels at heart, shaking our fists at God. Oh, we may not do it on the outside, but in our hearts, we want to be self-rulers and we don't want to submit to the sovereignty of God and to His Son, Jesus Christ. You see, all of us have eyes, but we cannot see God at work in the person of Christ. We have ears, but we're deaf to the good news that God is saving sinners through the shame and the suffering of His servant. We have minds, but they're darkened by unbelief. We have wills, but they are enslaved to sin. We have emotions, but we find no joy in God working out His salvation through His servant. And yes, we have life, but we're actually dead 
in our sins. Now, that's the bad news of verse 1. Who would ever believe this? It's our inability. But there's good news in verse 1 too. And the good news is God graciously provides His ability to overcome our inability to believe. And so the second truth I want you to see in verse 1 is this. God's ability to graciously reveal Himself at work to save sinners in the person of His suffering servant. You see, in verse 1, God is, not real, God is not merely saying that He's working through the servant. He's literally say, saying, that suffering servant is my mighty arm. It is me at work accomplishing salvation. Jesus is the arm of the Lord. So, the initial response to the suffering servant is one of unbelief. They see, but they are blind. They hear, but they are deaf to the hope of the gospel. And why is that? It's because, number two, their response is they are unimpressed. They are unimpressed. When they look at the suffering servant, all they see is a mere man who is enduring great shame and suffering. In other words, they ask this question, How could someone so ordinary be our extraordinary Savior? Look at verse 2. For he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. The first thing that we see here is when they looked at, at Jesus, this is 700 years in the future, when Jesus came, what they looked at, all they saw was his humanity. They simply saw a man and an average man at that. Nothing more than an unimportant little shoot and a dry root. Now, what's going on with these word pictures? Isaiah is giving us two agricultural word pictures in order to show how unimportant and unimpressive the beginning, the birth, and the beginning of the life of the servant really was. He wasn't born in a palace. He wasn't surrounded with great adoration and riches and honor and glory. Instead, he's a little shoot and just a dry root. So what's the idea? His birth was massive. He started out like a little sucker plant. I don't know about you, but I have little suckers that come off the tree and uh, they're weak and they don't bear any fruit. They're not any good. And so what do you do? You go up and you just snap them. You just snap them off the base of the tree. Or if you've been in times here in Kansas City when there's not a lot of rain and the ground is dry, you can go to a plant or a root or a piece of, gra- a piece of grass, a clump of grass, and you can just pull it right up out of the dry ground. Why? Because it's unpromising. It is unpromising and unimportant. Think about the life of Jesus. He was born into poverty, the son of a skilled laborer. And those who knew him said, isn't this the carpenter's son? He grew up in poverty. He grew up in obscurity. He was born in the town of Nazareth. And that town had such a reputation, it was common to hear people say, 
Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Obscurity. But not only that, he was born in an area that was surrounded with impurity. Nazareth is in the northern part of Israel, far from the southern part where Jerusalem was, where the capital of the kings, the sons of David, way up north into what was called Galilee of the Gentiles, those who were considered unclean and impure. But you know what? There's good news in this idea of a root and a shoot. Because if you have eyes to see, and if you have ears to hear, you know that God has promised in the book of Isaiah, and also through the prophet Jeremiah, that the Messiah would be a shoot off of the line of David. He would be a branch of the sons of David. And so even though Jesus looked like a mere human who was unimpressive and didn't have much promise, unpromising about his life, the reality is he was the promised branch and root of David. Now, here's the reality. Not only did they just see his humanity, but they also, when they looked at Jesus, they just saw his humility. And so let's look at the rest of verse 2. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. Now, what is he saying here? Isaiah is predicting in the future that when the servant will come, they, his stature will be unimpressive. There will be no majesty about him. Now, that's kind of hard for us to understand because anytime we see a picture of Jesus, nearly always, when you see a picture of Jesus, there's like a halo over his head. He's, he's very beautiful and noble looking. He stands out of the crowd and everybody's surrounding him and you can't mistake, well, there's Jesus. But the reality is this. The Bible never tells us what Jesus looks like. And what this verse is telling us is if you saw Jesus, he wasn't necessarily a tall man or a big man. He didn't stand out in the crowd. Now, since I'm, you know, we're, we're in America and we think leaders need to be tall, dark, and handsome. And that's bad news for a guy like me because I'm neither tall, dark, and, well, my wife says I'm handsome, and I guess that's what counts the most, right? But the reality is we think that way. This is an election year. What does everybody talk about? He doesn't look presidential. He doesn't talk presidential. He doesn't act presidential. What are they saying? They're saying his stature, his appearance, his way he speaks. And yet in this passage, we're being told that there was nothing impressive. There was no majesty to him, but also he was very unimportant to look at. There was no beauty about him. Again, Jesus was your average Joe. He would not stand out in a crowd because it wasn't what he looked like on the outside that made the difference. It's who he was on the inside. Do you realize the only description of Jesus is about his character? The Bible says that he is meek and gentle. It's his humility, his humble submission to his master, to his father, his obedience 
to save others. And so the first two response to the shameful suffering of the servant is unbelief. How could our salvation come through such humiliation? It's unimpressed. How could someone so ordinary be our extraordinary Savior? But wait until they see him in his real ultimate suffering. Wait till they see him in the grueling suffering of the cross. And the prediction is this, they will count him unworthy. They will see him as unworthy. And they will ask themselves, how can we worship someone we consider to be so unworthy? And we see this in verse 3. Let's look at verse 3 again. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hid their face. Here's the two things I want you to see out of that. These people who are called we, they're not clearly identified, but here's what they say. We considered him to be undeserving, and so everybody turned away from him. Now, why did they turn away from him? There's two famous phrases here that tell us, and they're probably familiar to you if you're familiar with the Bible, and it's this. He was a man of sorrows, and he was a man of grief, or better translated, sickness. Why did they turn away from him? Because when they looked at Jesus, they saw a man of sorrows. Now, let me tell you what that doesn't mean. That doesn't mean that Jesus went around with a sad face and was a moody, melancholy person all the time. No. What it means is when they saw Jesus, they, thought, they saw this is a bad man coming to a sad, sad end. They saw his suffering. And they said, you know what, look how sad, look how sad he is as he suffers for his sins. This is a sad end of a bad man. He's a man of sorrows. But you know what the truth was? The truth was this. In reality, he wasn't suffering for his own sins. He was suffering for the sins of others. Jesus was never sad about his own sins because he was the sinless son of God, fully submitted to his father and who never faltered in his obedience and always did what he ought to do and never did what he shouldn't do. He didn't get sad over his sins. What made him sad was the sins of others. In fact, in the Gospels, Jesus weeps at least two times. And one of those times is when he's weeping over the city of Jerusalem. He is headed to the cross. And in Luke 19, it reads this. Luke 19, 41 through 44. Here's what it says. When he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now... They have been hidden from your eyes. You see, they had an inability to see. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side. 
and they will level you to the ground and your children with you, and they will not leave you one stone upon another because, listen, because you did not recognize your time of salvation. You see, they saw him, but they were unable to believe. They saw, but they didn't see. They heard, but they didn't hear. And then the other time Jesus wept was over the death of his friend Lazarus. And again, he sees disease. He sees death. That rings true in what we're going through right now. And he saw that, and ultimately he knew those were the consequences of sin. And he was surrounded before Lazarus' tomb with unbelieving people who didn't realize that the resurrection and the life was standing in their presence and was about to raise the dead right before them. And so what makes Jesus sad is not his sins. What makes Jesus sad is our sins. And he suffered as a man of sorrows for your sins and for mine. Why did they turn away? They saw a man of sorrows, but also they saw a man of sickness. That's what it means when it says he was acquainted with grief. This word grief can be translated as sickness. And sometimes it refers to physical sickness in the Bible. But in Isaiah and in this chapter, it's not so much physical sickness as the sickness that is rooted in our sin. I would call it sin sickness. And what they did is that when they looked at the servant uh, suffering such shame, and as he suffered on the cross, they looked at him and they said, this is a sin sick man. Look how he suffers for his sin. But again, the reality is, He wasn't sin sick because of his sin. He was sin sick because he was bearing our sin. He was a sin bearer for others on the cross. So they considered all that they saw. And here's the conclusion they came to. We consider him to be unworthy. We consider him to be unworthy. Look in your Bibles at the end of verse 3. And this is the summary of these three verses. He was despised and we did not esteem him. We did not esteem him. This man is so unworthy. He doesn't deserve our respect. Much less does he deserve our worship. His suffering is so shameful. It has to be due to God cursing him. So basically, here's what they're saying. Behold, he is cursed by God for his own sin. All he is worthy of is being despised and rejected by us. And this is their testimony. We find this servant to be so insignificant, so unpromising, so unimpressive, so unimportant that... He is unworthy of our respect, much less worshiping Him as the sovereign Savior of our people. And you know what? That's exactly what happened at Jesus' first coming. 
He came to his own people, Israel, in John chapter 1 says, He came to his own and they received him not. And we know that the Gentiles rejected him as well. The Roman rulers sentenced him to crucifixion after the nation of Israel demanded that he be crucified. But they were wrong. They were wrong. He is worthy of glory, honor, and power. For he wasn't suffering for his own sins, but he was bearing the sins of the world as the suffering, sacrificial lamb of God. And there were a believing remnant that heard the message and saw the Savior and they repented. The twelve disciples were Jewish men who repented and believed. The first women that came on the morning of the resurrection were Jewish women that believed. Think about the Pharisee Nicodemus and later the the Pharisee Saul who became the mighty missionary Paul. Think of the 120 disciples gathered on Pentecost who soon became 3,000 and then 5,000. So there is a believing remnant among the Jews, but there's even a greater majority of Gentiles who are believing in Jesus. Think of the Roman centurion at the foot of the cross. Truly, this is the Son of God. Think of all the Gentile churches that Paul planted. And even now, the gospel is going out to the Gentile people groups. And people are being saved. There is a believing remnant. But how did this change come about? What caused them to go from unbelief, unimpressed, and thinking he's unworthy, to suddenly saying, now we see, now we believe, now we are impressed, for we know he is truly God and truly man. He is the Son of God. Well, the answer is back in Isaiah 53, 1. What caused the change of heart for the we, these people that are called we in this passage? The change of heart is in Isaiah 53, verse 1. It's God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Because what you see in Isaiah 53, 1, is that even though we are unable to believe and save and do anything to save ourselves or come and seek God to, to earn His favor or deserve His salvation... God in His grace reveals the arm of the Lord in the person of Jesus Christ. There's a revelation from God that He initiates by His grace. And then He reveals that Jesus of Nazareth is God in the flesh. The incarnation comes into our understanding. And we see that this is not a mere human. He is truly human, but He's also truly God. And then the proclamation of the gospel comes to us. And we hear the good news that God has done for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. We hear the good news that Jesus lived the life that we should all live, but none of us have. And he died the death we deserved, but he died it willingly in order to bear our sins. Now you say, Chris, how do we know that's what Isaiah 53, 1 means? Well, the reason we know it 
is because Paul quotes Isaiah 53.1 in the book of Romans chapter 10. So if you have your Bibles this morning, turn with me to Romans chapter 10. We're going to look at Romans chapter 10, and we're going to read verses 13 through 17. Because right at the end of this passage, right at the end of this passage, Paul's going to quote Isaiah 53.1. In fact, he's going to quote another passage of Isaiah as well. So let's look at it. Romans 10, uh, verse 13. Follow along as I read. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in Him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as is written, and now he's going to quote Isaiah 52, right in the same context. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel. And then he goes to verse 16, and he quotes Isaiah 53.1. However, they did not all heed the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? In other words, he emphasizes not everyone believes because of man's inability. But then he goes to verse 17. Listen to Romans 10, 17. For faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. In other words, God's ability overcomes our inability Due to our depravity. And how does it happen? Through the preaching of the gospel. And through the gospel, God creates faith in the hearts of unbelievers. And through the gospel, we are given faith in order to repent and place our trust in Jesus Christ. And so what happens in this story is Isaiah is looking Over 700 years into the future, God is predicting through Isaiah that in 700 years in the future, the servant would show up and he would be a a tender shoot and a dry root. He will be unimpressive. He will grow up in obscurity and poverty and amidst of people of impurity. And people will be unbelieving. They will be unimpressed. And they will think he is unworthy to be their savior. But some will hear the gospel and their hearts will be changed. And you know what? That happened at the first coming. But there's something more in this passage. Because it's not just about the first coming of Christ. It's about the second coming of Christ. Because at the second coming of Christ, Christ will come with the nail-scarred hands and the scarred feet and the, 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 the rip in his side. And the nation of Israel at that time will be surrounded at the battle of Armageddon. And they will about to be destroyed by the Antichrist and the Gentile armies of the earth. And suddenly, right when the knife is right at their neck as a nation, they will look up and down will come. Jesus Christ, the suffering servant. And here's what Zechariah 12, 10 says. I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication, 
so that they will look on me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one who mourns for an only son and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. Now they are the ones who are crying over their sin sickness for rejecting their Savior whom they crucified. And in that day there will be great mourning in Jerusalem like the mourning on the plain of Megiddo, Armageddon. And Israel will be restored. Why? Because they repent and place their faith in their crucified Savior. And they will be restored as a nation and will be ushered into the kingdom of God here on earth. And the Gentile kings, according to Revelation 22, the Gentile kings will bring in the wealth of the nations. And instead of ignoring the suffering servant, they will adore him. And so that is the future at his second coming. So let me end with this. And let me end with this question. Who are the we? Now a remnant of believing Jews, a majority of believing Gentiles called the church. One day the nation of Israel at the second coming and the kings of the earth as they enter the millennial kingdom. But today I want to ask you this. Who are the we? And this message, this passage has great news for us because here's the answer. You and me can be the we. Now, I worked a long time on that, so I want you to turn to your neighbor, and if you don't have a neighbor with you, just look at the screen and say, you and me can be the we. You and me can be the we in this passage. How do we do it? The only question is this. Have you repented of your sin-sick lifestyle and turned away from your self-rule in order to submit your heart and your life to the sovereign Savior who is the suffering servant? Have you turned from your own way of doing things to doing things His way and for His glory? You see, this morning, we can share in His salvation by sharing in His shame and in His sufferings. Unbelief is unable to see the Lord's saving power at work in His servant's shameful suffering. But God, but God, graciously enables a to hear and believe. You, you can be a part of that believing remnant. You and me can be a part of the we in this passage. And so I challenge you with three things. One, Share in His salvation this morning. Turn from your sin-sick lifestyle and no longer see Jesus as just a mere human that you can dismiss and doesn't deserve your honor, your praise, your life, your obedience, your faith. Turn from that and turn to Him for who He really is. Truly God, truly man, the arm of the Lord present among us to work salvation, share in His salvation. Secondly, if you've already done that this morning, I challenge you to share in His shame. Because if we are His servants and we are following Him, then we are going to suffer shame 
and we are going to suffer like he suffered. And so share in his shame. Don't pull back from following him when times get hard. And right now, they're hard. And they may get harder. We don't know what the future may hold. But we know this, that the suffering servant endured the cross because of the joy set before him. So share in his shame in serving him. And then finally, I challenge you with this thought. Share in his sorrow over this sin sick world. Right now, a virus is threatening. It's a pandemic. It's global. And there's all sorts of opinions and ideas about it. But the reality is we're locked down. Whole countries are locked down. The entire nation of Italy has suffered greatly and great deaths. And you know why? Because COVID-19 is simply a symptom of a fallen world that's out of a line with its creator. We live in a sin-sick world. And people are going into eternity without knowing the good news of Jesus Christ. How will they hear unless someone goes? How will they know unless we tell them? And so let us lament as a church and let us be people of sorrow over the consequences of a sin-sick world. And let's pray for many men and women and children to come to salvation in the midst of this crisis. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask Him to do that very thing. Father in heaven, we come, and this is a rich passage of Scripture. And Lord, you have revealed to us who your son is, who your servant is. And though he suffers great shame, Lord, we know that he is the arm of the Lord. He is you present with us, mighty to save. And he was there on the cross, suffering for the sins of the world as the Lamb of God, and then he was buried and rose again. And now he was, is exalted at the, your right hand, and we pray that he will grant salvation to many during this difficult time. And Lord, we long for the day when he, his kingdom will come, and his will will be done on this earth as it is in heaven. We look for the restoration of Israel as a nation. We look for the adoration of the nations to be brought in to your kingdom on earth. We long ultimately, Lord, for the new creation where there's no more curse, no more weeping, no more sickness, no more virus. There is simply the glory of you, Father, and the Lamb who was slain, who is now the Lion of the tribe of Judah. In his name we pray, amen. Now don't forget, download the notes and there is family worship suggestions at the end of those notes. We'll see you at the same time next week.